There is no health without mental health. Greetings and welcome to Beyond Madness from me, your host, Professor Christopher Paul Sabo. I'm a psychiatrist and this podcast series is dedicated to the discipline of psychiatry, discussing issues that, whilst emanating directly from the discipline, have implications for society generally. The series engages thought leaders from within the discipline and beyond to assist in exploring these issues and providing insights into some of the thinking that contributes to the richness of psychiatry. Beyond Madness is proudly brought to you by Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave. Have you ever woken up profoundly disturbed by a dream and wondered what it meant? Maybe nothing, but the images linger. Maybe dreams don't mean anything, but if they occur as part of a regular sleep, surely they serve a purpose as part of normal bodily functioning. The body is nothing if not a well-designed machine with purpose. So what purpose do dreams serve? Today's episode explores the phenomenon of dreams, and I have phrased the title of the episode as a question. Dreams, individual meaning or general purpose, which suggests that it might be one or the other, although personally I'm not convinced that it is the case, namely that dreams either have meaning that require interpretation or that they are meaningless and are simply a phenomenon that serves a purpose like so many other bodily functions. Joining me to discuss this topic and potentially provide an answer to the question, I have the pleasure of welcoming Alison Bentley and Mark Solms. Alison is a medical doctor and has been involved with sleep medicine and sleep research for 30 years. She completed her medical degree at the University of the Witwatersrand, a.k.a. WITS, followed by a PhD on restless leg syndrome, also at WITS in 2007. She developed the Dialabed Sleep Laboratory in the School of Physiology at WITS into one of the leading sleep research entities in South Africa. She has a private practice dedicated to sleep disorders as well as running sleep studies, both apnea tests and full polysomnograms. She was the founding chairperson of the South African Sleep Society in the late 1990s and is the current chairperson of the South African Society for Sleep and Health. She's also represented Africa on the governing body of the World Association of Sleep Medicine. Mark is a professor and director of neuropsychology at the Neuroscience Institute of the University of Cape Town. He's published 350 articles and eight books, one of which was the Neuropsychology of Dreams. He's won numerous awards and prizes as is an honorary fellow of the American College of Psychiatrists. He is an A1-rated researcher as determined by the National Research Foundation, meaning that he is a researcher unequivocally recognized by his peers as a leading international scholar in his field, both for the high quality and impact of recent research outputs. Alison and Mark, welcome. And thanks for making the time to join us, and, and such a privilege to be hosting you for today's episode. I'd um, considered borrowing from Shakespeare's Hamlet, that was my matrix at work, to title the episode To Sleep Perchance to Dream. But I think Hamlet was uh, contemplating death when he spoke those words, so not quite the context of today's conversation. So, I mean, dreams occur within the context of sleep, notwithstanding the phenomenon of daydreaming, which I think mm. we're all very familiar with. But it seems appropriate to, to, to set the scene with a discussion about sleep. So I'm going to start with Alison. Mm-hmm. And aside from the obvious reality of, of, of sleep being something that happens when we are not awake, is there a definition of sleep? Well, the, the only def- it's hard to define sleep. It really is. Um, so s- some people have called it reversible coma, you know, like a re- reversible unconsciousness. Okay. Um, and, and this, this kind of, sense that almost sleep is is a kind of death 
goes back to, I think it's the ancient Greeks, where the, the two gods of sleep and death were brothers. Right. Okay. <laughs> so there was this, there's this concept that, and, and there is this, you know, when you fall asleep, you kind of abandon yourself to whatever's going to happen next. There is this, you kind of just have to let go and right. let it happen. Right. Yes. Um, so there, there is a sense that, that, that it's, that it's an uncomfortable, maybe an uncomfortable thing to do. Um, except every single living, be- living organism sleeps. You know what I mean? Yes. It has a very specific function. It's not just what we do when we're not awake. Um, on, in honestly, wakefulness, our wakefulness is, is poorer if we don't sleep. Yes. So sleep is absolutely um, fundamental to making us have 100% performance when we're awake. So I like that idea of abandonment, abandoning yourself to this biologically um, absolutely necessary process. That you have no control over. Yes, and I think that most people – would not necessarily think of themselves as abandoning themselves to a process over which they have no control. It just seems mm. so instinctive and natural to just do that. But mm. when you put it like that, that gives it a slightly different flavor. Well, certainly the, insom- the patients who have insomnia are aware of this. I mean, right. they can't do that. They, they, they kind of stumble. They have anxiety about it. Um, about the process. Yes. Um, and, and we get lots of people who come and say, listen, my Fitbit tells me I'm not getting enough deep sleep. How do I get more deep sleep? And I go, you can't control this, right? right. You, you go to sleep and your brain biologically has the amount of REM sleep it needs, has the amount of deep sleep it needs, constructs the whole sleep. Sleep is not, um, a uniform structure. It's not, not a single thing. Yes. It has different stages. Yes. Some of those stages, particularly REM sleep, are very specifically timed. Right. Um, and there are a lot of, of neurochemicals in the brain. So that's what I wanted to come yeah. to is, is, is the fact that it's not a homogenous. No, it's not. And so you, you kind of sleep and you just think, well, let's sleep. But in fact, there's a mm. hell of a lot going on. There's stages, yeah. they're timed, they have a duration, there are different things mm. going on. So maybe you can sort of put us in the picture there in terms of what is sure. actually happening when we sleep. Yeah. I mean, the other thing I think that people don't recognize is there isn't such a thing as an eight-hour solid sleep. Like, nobody sleeps for eight hours. Dead. There, there are wake-ups. There are natural wakings that occur during sleep. We talk about the fact that there are sleep cycles within a sleep period. So the sleep period would be eight hours, for example. But the sleep cycle is shorter than that. It's one and a half to two hours, somewhere in that kind of zone. Can be shorter, can be longer. Again, the brain will do this. It's not like something you can plan okay. and you can predict. But the brain, usually when you fall asleep, you would go into what we call non-REM sleep. So to just give people an idea, I mean, REM sleep and non-REM sleep were discovered in the 70s by somebody watching somebody sleep. That's pretty recent. It, it, sleep medicine is a very recent thing compared to like cardiology, which has been going on for hundreds of years, you yes. know, study of the heart. Yes. Study of sleep really is 50 to 70 years old. I mean, that's, that's really all it is. And that's incredible because, I mean, that's like eight hours of your day, potentially on a good day. Well, it is. It's a significant portion of your life. Right. It is, as I said, it is so important that you sleep well because if you don't sleep well, you don't function well. And we, that's what we focus on is daytime functioning. Right. That's what we think is the important time. But if you don't get the sleep, then that important time is compromised. Right. Um, every single time. So somebody watching, medical student watching people sleep, that was his project to do was watch people sleep, noticed that there were periods where the eyes were moving rapidly. Okay. And ours where they weren't. Right. Times where they weren't. So they kind of went, well, that's rapid eye movement sleep, and this is non-rapid eye movement sleep. Which so is that's very, the big broad distinction. That's the big broad distinction. Right. Yeah. 
Then within Ron REM sleep, once we started using the EEG, which is, as most people know is used for epilepsy. And so once we started using the so EEG. So let's just, let's just get that yeah. clear. What is the EEG? It so measures? The, it, it measures the brain activity at the very top of the brain. So right. it doesn't measure down there. It measures what's coming up to the top. Right. That's what we can see. So that's see. the electroencephalogram. Yes. Right. The electroencephalogram. So once we started using that, we could see that this non-REM sleep was not, again, a homogenous thing. Different types of waves that we can see, very rapid, fast waves, very big, slow waves. Um, but it also seemed to have a pattern to it. Right. And within each sleep cycle, then you have a pattern where you will you go through most of those stages of sleep in a normal sleep. Go through most of those stages of sleep, of the non-REM stages, and then 70 to 120 minutes. I mean, it's very vague. Right. You'll usually have a period of REM sleep. Right. And after that REM sleep, a brief awakening. Okay. Now the the philosophy is that that brief awakening is a is a it's a survival thing. You wake up, you scan the environment. Is everything okay? You can go back to sleep again. So actual awakenings during sleep doesn't mean you're having a bad sleep. It actually is part of the process. It's part of the process, but if you're a good sleeper, you don't ever remember them. Okay. So you can see them on the EEG. You can say, "Aha, they've woken up." Right? Yes, it could be five seconds. But that wake up and that scan is the, is the reason why if you sleep in a strange environment, you wake up a couple of times a night, which is maybe not normal. Okay. Because your brain goes, something's different. Yes. Okay. Wake Lights different, sounds different. Yes. Um, beds different, pillows different, noises are different. You know what I'm saying? Right. There's a difference. And so it wakes you up and you just turn over and go back to sleep again. And three or four days later, you sleep through because now it's normal. Right. So, so it's very adaptive. It's very adaptive to well, the environment. Which is very interesting. Well, that's the thing. Sleep isn't just isn't this homogenous thing that just happens. It it can adapt. It can change. It changes if you have a very tough day. So if you have, if, particularly if you exercise a lot, right, you're likely to have more slow wave sleep that night than you would have on a night that you didn't exercise. So now this issue of slow wave sleep, because that's kind of occurring in what stage? Because because it's so the that's various the non-REM. stages. Yeah. yeah. So, so within non-REM. Non-REM, there's stage one, stage two, and stage N three. So N one, N two, N three. N three is this deep, slow wave sleep. And this is the one that really is the restorative sleep. Yeah, it's physically restorative. I mean, it's not the only function that it has, but certainly most of your growth hormone occurs during that stage of sleep. So the release of growth hormone. Yeah, the release of growth hormone, and then all the downstream effects that happen from that. That when we're adults, we don't necessarily grow, but we repair. I think that's very important, yeah. the repair. It's repair. It's physical repair. So that's why if you increase the amount of exercise, you increase the amount of slow-wave sleep. Because you need to repair You need more. more repair, yes. Got it. You need more repair. Okay. So that's, that's sl- slow-wave sleep. And, I mean, lots of, lots of things happen during slow-wave sleep, so that's not the only thing. Yes. You know? And people have tried to go, and go, well, REM sleep is this and slow-wave sleep is that. And then somebody comes up and goes, oh, no, you can do that and that as well. It may be not as good, but you can do it there. Okay. Or it might be different. So it's not so absolute. It's not absolute at all. It's not absolute. So, I mean, I'm sure Mark will tell us. Yes, no, have, Mark is going to tell us. You can have that. dreams in, in, de- in slow wave sleep as well. Right. And dreams in REM sleep, but they're different. Right. Memory, memory is formed in REM sleep and in slow wave sleep, just different types of memories. So that's the other issue that I wanted to mention. So there's memory consolidation. Mm, mm. Which is a function of sleep. There was a study in 1928. It's the the funniest study. So it used two people. Okay. (laughs) Two people. Well, N equals two. Yes. (laughs) And they, 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 they taught them something and then on two separate days. And on the one day they didn't let them sleep and they tested them an hour later. And on the second day they let them nap for half an hour. And they remembered more after that half an hour nap than they remembered 
with not napping. So what is the conclusion? So mem- sleep is important for memory consolidate for right. if you if you want to so there's a working memory that we have like just in our head all the time but if you want to put something into your memory and be able to recall it at a second date. Right. You need to consolidate it and that consolidation happens during sleep. So instead of studying when I'm sleeping I'm actually doing something. Having studied. Having studied. Having studied. Yes. Caveat. Yes. yes, having studied. So yes, I mean, if students say to me, like, how should we, how should we study? I go, you should study and nap and study and nap and study and nap. Okay. But there's like eight hours of studying and then sleeping might not be as effective as, as having a nap after a smaller period so that you have time to consolidate. I don't know. I don't know that the work's been done. No, no, but, but it's, 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 it's an it's, interesting kind of It's, it's interesting angle. in the sense that there could be an actual scientific basis for napping after study mm, mm. and not to study for extended periods necessarily without that break mm. that might help to consolidate. Well, I think students out there listening to this will be thinking differently about, <laughs> hmm, I think I need that nap now. It's like, it's like working and filing. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> and then well, working and filing. Okay, but, but I think that's a very good analogy, yeah, yeah. actually. And I'm not sure that there is enough I've never heard, I mean, I, to be honest with you, I haven't really thought about it that way because I don't think I've really read about it that way. So I think that for me, this is kind of like a novel concept and I don't know how novel it is. Uh, well, 1928, it's not novel. <laughs> no, not novel in that sense. But for example, I, I don't think you have people actively promoting the idea that, you know, if you studied for a period of time and you feel a little bit drowsy and you want to have a snooze, it's not a bad thing no. because in fact what you may be doing is actually augmenting the studying process mm. by having memory consolidation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that is really interesting. I just wanted to come back to the REM, non-REM. Mm-hmm. I think what's important is, is, is that REM follows stages one, two, and three. Mm. And certainly in psychiatry, what we see in depressed patients is that our REM, because REM occurs at a certain time, mm, and it seems usually. to occur earlier yep. with depression, and there seems to be more of it, which impacts on the mm. amount of slow-wave sleep. Yes. So that is where the sort of sleep disturbance comes in. And it's I wouldn't say it's diagnostic of major depression, but certainly there are sleep mm. changes associated with depression. Absolutely. And the, the same kind of thing happens with narcolepsy, for example. Right. So narcolepsy, REM sleep happens a lot earlier. Okay. But that is a, 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 a neuro, that has a neurological basis in, a, in the loss of a particular neurotransmitter called orexin. Right. Um, and a, orexin. A, 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 yeah. And orexin's job is really to, to maintain wakefulness, but also it seems to have some function in um, suppressing REM or actually controlling REM sleep. Okay. So if you don't have it, then you have an, an imbalance in REM sleep. I mean, there's no question REM sleep is the most interesting sleep. So this is the one that no, I wanted to come to because yeah, we're no, kind no. of zooming in because we're going to bring Mark in shortly yes. to, 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 to talk about aspects of, of, of REM, which is obviously it's an aroused state similar to wakefulness. Well, the EEG, so it's, it used to be called paradoxical sleep okay. because the paradox was if you do the EEG during REM sleep, it, it's very similar to wakefulness. Right. It's not this deep, like these big waves that occur in slow wave sleep. Okay. It's this random, fast activity. Yes, there are some specific waves that you can see in REM sleep that you don't see in wakefulness. But, you know, meh, yes. meh. if you kind of look at it, it's pretty, it's pretty similar. But REM sleep also is, has, has a number of components which are very well coordinated usually. Okay. So it's not just about the, the EEG. I mean, okay. there's obviously the rapid eye movements. Those right. are something, right? We're not, sh- I'm, I'm not sure Mark might know, <laughs> but I'm not, I'm not sure what they are, but they're so typical of, of REM sleep and they only occur during REM sleep. 
And, you know, having spent many hours watching sleep studies, you know, as, the, as they roll across, I, st- I, I always got a thrill when I kind of went there going into REM sleep. I can see it coming. Like yeah. I would see the stage two. It would kind of change, you yes. know, and I'd go there going and I'd go, there the eye movements. Yay. Okay. So it's just such a thing, these yes. eye movements um, that come from the ponds all the way up, you know, these, these. So there's eye movements that only happen during REM sleep. Then during REM sleep, obviously dreams are a, a big part what, so, of, of REM sleep. So my as question well. was flippantly going to be: Is that them watching the movie of the dream? Well, Mark will tell you. <laughs> I'm sure Mark will tell you about that. I, I do, I'm, I'm very biological, so I kind of look at that. And then the other component of REM sleep is the paralysis that you have. That again, yes. you have muscle relaxation through all the stages of sleep, but only in REM sleep are you paralyzed. And that's got a very specific function. Well, you know, biologically, we would, I would, I would say to patients, you, you need to be grateful that you're paralyzed, right? right exactly. <laughs> because if you remember the last dream you have, um, you could have been acting that out. And in fact, there is a sleep disorder called REM behavior disorder. That's the one. Um, which happens usually in older people where the paralysis, so there's degeneration or just, you know, the, the nucleus that's involved in this paralysis is not functioning well. Right. And so the paralysis kind of flicks on and off during REM sleep. And and what happens is that patients then act out their dreams, usually with injury. I mean, they usually get injured because of this. Um, or, you know, I've had patients who've come to me and the, and the wife has said, listen, I woke up with him straddling me, kind of attacking me, like right. hitting me. Um, and the husband's going, I'm so embarrassed by that because that's not who I am. Right. And I kind of say to him, well, what were you doing in the dream? And he goes, I was – somebody was attacking her and I was attacking them. Right. So, so the sense that the the sense that you if if you feel like you're acting out your dreams, you shouldn't be able to act out your dreams. I mean, you shouldn't be able to. For me, you know, and Mark can tell me that I'm wrong, but for me, like the, REM sleep is this playground for the brain. You know, right. you're completely paralyzed. The brain can do whatever it likes, right? Because nothing can happen. Like you're safe. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And then in REM behavior disorder, you're not safe. So people, I people who come and see me with a fractured collarbone, and I go. What happened? And they go, well, I was playing rugby in my dream, but actually playing rugby and tackled the chest of drawers. So that's kind of an interesting uh, combination of physical realities. You've got this mm. dramatic stuff happening mm. visually mm. and audio as well, no doubt, but you can't do anything with it. No. So now the other thing that occurs during REM is penile tumescence and clitoral mm-hmm. tumescence. Mm-hmm. So what is that all about? Because I suddenly thought to myself, well – the male penis is mm. getting erect, but there's myotonia. So you can't act out. Yeah, but, but that's the autonomic nervous system, right? right? So that's a different nervous system. Okay. okay. So that's what I wanted to. So, so the, the, the physical nervous system, as in the, the muscle tone, is all about, is all about this, um, it's what we call a somatic nervous system. Right. So that's all about motor function, movement, and it's all about sensory. Right. Okay. And, and you can, at a very central level, um, essentially interfere with any, any output from the motor system. There's very little input from the sensory system as well. Okay. Except for the, for the, for the sensory system involved in hearing and sight and that kind of thing. So that can still work. Right. As can the sympathetic nervous system. So the fright and flight system and the vagus nerve, which is, which, uh, which is about the autonomic nervous system, which is about the parasympathetic nervous system. Kind of, we call it rest and digest. Okay. You know, that, yes. that kind of thing. And so, um, penile tumescence and that kind of thing is very much controlled by the sympathetic parasympathetic nervous system. So that can still carry on. That's, right. that's not stopped, if right. that makes sense. Yes. So that's not paralyzed. But it occurs specifically during REM. 
it does occur during REM, and I'm not sure exactly why. Okay, so that was that was kind <laughs> but of. There the, is well during REM as well. The, the the important thing is that the autonomic nervous system is not is not well controlled. Right. It's not well controlled. So we do have fluctuations in heart rate, for example. So okay. I mean, uh, things like the Fitbit. Okay, so yes. if you look at the Fitbit. They use heart rate variability. Yes. To which is how variable is your heart rate? Which is important. Um, to define that now you're in REM sleep. Okay. Okay. So that's where they remember. It's just a watch. All it can do is measure heart rate. But it's telling you. And so the heart rate variability and whether the pul- the pulse rate is increased, whether the pulse rate is decreased, whether it varies a lot. That's what the Fitbit and all of those kind of devices use to define the stages of sleep. They're not completely accurate, but it's a good kind of way to do it. And in REM sleep, it's all over the place. So is body temperature. I mean, if, if we kind of a bit like a lizard during REM sleep. Right. So if, you, if you're hot, um, your body temperature is going to climb, and that's when you're going to wake up. If you're cold, your body temperature is going to drop, and that's when you're going to wake up. And you do that mainly in REM sleep because you can't control it well. Right. Does that make sense? So in REM sleep, all of these kind of automatic functions, not great. So I think that's why it's probably more interesting because there's stuff going on, a lot of stuff going on. Actually. Well, there's a lot of stuff going on. And, for example, in cardiology, so if we look at, at, at heart function, there are a lot of cardiologists who believe, and certainly the sleep world believes, that myocardial infarcts are having heart attacks much more likely to happen in REM sleep because hmm. of this it, because of this. This instability of the right. whole system okay. because your breathing is unstable. Because if you have sleep apnea, it's always going to be worse during REM. People are going to be frightened to go into <laughs> REM now after this. They're going to be having nightmares, <laughs> never mind dreams. <laughs> they can't stop it. They can't stop it, right? And it, but it's an essential time. It's yes. an essential time for the brain. Um, and, and so very, very kind of crudely, we would kind of go slow wave sleep is really about physical restoration, right. REM sleep, brain restoration. Like that's where the brain does its thing. So that brings me, and Mark's going to come in shortly, to this whole issue of dreaming. Mm. So from a physiological point of view, so what's the purpose? What's the function? Because there are some people who would say it's just kind of garbage disposal. Mm. You're just kind of filtering out the stuff that you don't need while you're busy mm. consolidating the stuff that you do. Mm. Then you have Freud and Jung who would say, no, 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 no. This is more interpretive. Mm. And obviously we're going to get into that. Mm. Um, so just what well, would you say? Yeah. So I try to avoid this conversation all the okay, time. Okay. <laughs> all right. Well, that's why we have Mark here. <laughs> that's why we are going to, going to go to Mark quickly. We are going to. But, but for me, it's, it's really um, – so I've been tackled on it a number of times about, about dreams. And I certainly think that dreams have a function of the filtering, of right. the memory consolidation, in the fact that you have to open memories to know where to put new memories. Like there, there's a – there's a folder, there's a filing and a folder kind of function. And you can't just slot memories in if you don't know what's there. So there's, there is a kind of breaking open of that. There is a, but there's a ra- often a very randomness to memories. Yes. But for me personally, yes. and for many people that I've spoken to, I don't remember a single dream. Okay. Like I don't, if, so, so I kind of, so people go to you, no, but it, if they tackle me and they kind of go, no, it's your subconscious speaking to your conscious, then I kind of go, well, in me, Doing a very bad job. Your subconscious is fast <laughs> really, asleep. Really Your subconscious is fast asleep yeah. and not doing anything. But I'm not – honestly, if I think about the dreams – so I used to have very bad dreams when I was a kid. I remember those. Right. Absolutely remember them. But as an adult, I don't – I honestly can – I can tell you like two months ago I had a dream. Okay. Like that's literally what it is. Most nights – last night did not have a dream at all. Obviously, I dreamt. Obviously. Because that's part of dream. That's part yes. of REM sleep. Yes. But you don't remember your dreams unless you wake up in them. Okay. 
So I just hope that my consciousness and my subconscious are having a thing, having a tea party. Quietly behind with, the scenes. Without me knowing about behind it. Behind the scenes. Because if that's what the function is and I'm not aware of it, um, I, I don't know. Do you know what I mean? But okay. I also don't think, don't think dreams are one thing. Yeah. Like I don't think they're all prophetic or they're all this or they're all that. I'm, I think there are… I'm glad you mentioned prophetic. Different I'm gonna, types I'm, of dreams. I'm going to give you an account later on. But first I want to bring in Mark. Yes, who's been this patient. is his point. No, this is, <laughs> so, so Mark, I have to tell you, I watched your lecture on, on, on YouTube uh, entitled The Dreaming Brain that you gave to the Royal Institution in May 2021. I found it fascinating. And, and, and you really set about explaining your theory about dreams based on research you had conducted. And... I'd like you to, if you can, just walk us through what your theory is, what you did, what you found, and, and, and ultimately what you concluded. So I know that's a hell of a lot, but um, I'm going to hand over to you and hear what you have to say. Thanks. Um, well, we spend uh, 20% of our sleeping hours, although, as Alison just said, we don't remember it. We spend a lot of time dreaming. So, you know, this is a very substantial part of what the brain does. And uh, when I first started studying the topic, uh, which was in the 1980s, it was, you know, sort of remarkably neglected uh, aspect of our cognition. We knew a hell of a lot about the brain mechanisms of language and perception and memory and whatnot, but we knew very little about the brain mechanisms of dreaming. Um, so uh, what I did was the standard thing that one does uh, when you're wanting to get started in mapping out the neural correlates of a mental function. You have a look at what happens to that function with damage to different parts of the brain. Right. It's called the clinico-anatomical method. Mm-hmm. And, you know, remarkably, as, as, as late as the 80s, uh, this method had never been applied to dreaming. So that, I, I was um, interested in a kind of... Uh, fishing expedition way, you know, uh, just having a look at what happens if there's damage to the left versus the right side of the brain, the frontal lobes versus the parietal lobes versus the temporal lobes and so on. Yes. And my predictions, uh, such as they were, were kind of the obvious ones. Like, for example, uh, if you have a left uh, uh, perisylvian stroke and you're aphasic, then you won't have language in your dreams. And if you have bilateral posterior cerebral artery stroke and you are cortically blind, then you won't see anything in your dreams. You know? So just to jump in there, Mark, so these are obviously uh, 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 correlates within the yeah. brain of specific functions. So when you ablate those areas, you lose those functions in yeah. real time. But in fact, what your theory was, you won't have them in your dreams either. Yeah. Right. And, you know, that's not, that's not a surprising theory. It's kind of what you would expect. There was nothing particularly interesting about the hypotheses that I started with. What was much more interesting was the surprising findings that that emanated from that study. Right. I studied a large number of patients, 367, I think it was, uh, with focal brain lesions. And it took a a while to accumulate that number of patients. And uh, these are the things that we found. First of all, that damage to the pontine, the, the, uh, uh, Alison mentioned earlier that there's a part of the brain stem uh, from which the um, PGO waves come, but that's also the part of the brain from that, that drives the whole, the whole sleep process. Right. And patients with damage to the part of the brain stem that generates REM sleep, the mesopontine tegmentum, they carried on dreaming, even though they no longer had REM sleep. Huh. That was a super big surprise. 
when I went through the literature, uh, you know, I discovered to my amazement that nobody had ever, you know, we had uh, established in animal studies and in human cases that damage to that region leads to loss of REM sleep, but nobody had bothered to study, you know, what the effect is on dreams. And so it was a complete shock to learn in the late, you know, in the late uh, 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 20th century, a good 50 years after REM sleep had been discovered, uh, that um, it's, uh, you know, that and, and correlated with dreaming, uh, that nobody had ever uh, established that loss of REM sleep due to damage to that part of the brain leads to loss of dreaming. Right. Um, Carry on. Yeah. So, and then what I found was conversely, uh, there were areas of the brain which, when damaged, lead to a loss of dreaming. Uh, and in those cases, uh, there's preservation of REM. Sorry, Mark, just to jump in there, what you're saying is that the loss of REM didn't lead to loss of dreaming. That's that, it, yeah. that, that you didn't have REM because we've got this exclusive kind of understanding, REM equals dreams. But what your finding showed was that actually not necessarily. Yeah, I mean, that was what we all assumed. Right. Uh, uh, the, the correlation was so strong, you know, being awakened from REM sleep, you have something like a 90% chance of getting a dream report. Right. Um, and being awakened from non-REM sleep, it's you know, less than 10% chance of getting a dream report on average. Um, so, you know, the correlation was, was, was well established. And so it was perfectly reasonable to assume that the brain mechanisms of REM sleep, in other words, what generates REM sleep is what generates dreaming. Right. So, and uh, I didn't expect to find anything other than that. So it was a big surprise to find that uh, damage to the part of the brain that generates REM sleep uh, does not lead to loss of dreaming. And that damage to a quite different part of the brain does lead to a loss of dreaming yes. with preservation of REM sleep. We call that a double dissociation of function. It means these are two separate functions. Dreaming right. and REM sleep are not the same thing, uh, although they're highly correlated. You know, so that's a sort of fundamental mistake. We teach first year students in statistics, you know, yes. <laughs> uh, uh, you know uh, uh, correlation is not causation. And uh, the, the, the areas which lead to loss of dreaming uh, are, in fact, twofold. Uh, the one which is not so surprising is in the parieto-occipital cortex, which is important for visual perception. Right. And dreaming is, you know, a visual perceptual phenomenon above all else. Uh, these patients lose dreaming uh, with preservation of REM sleep. That was not so theoretically interesting. But what was terribly interesting was that there's another area, which is the white matter um at the, at the base of the frontal lobes, the, the, the white fibers uh, 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 coursing underneath the lateral ventricles uh, from, the, from a different part of the brain stem, an area called the ventral tegmental area. Um, uh, and this circuit is called the mesocortical mesolimbic dopamine circuit. Okay. Uh, damage to that circuit bilaterally uh, leads to a cessation of dreaming. And that was a, you know, there was no obvious association between that part of the brain um, and and the, the experience of dreams so so that that was that, that was uh, um, worthy of further research and as a psychiatrist that kind of gets me interested because now we're talking psychiatric territory in terms of mesolimbic for example and the 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 fact that a lot of psychopathology is thought to 
emanate from within disturbances in that in, in that area. So anyway, I just thought I'd jump in there as a psychiatrist and say, <laughs> hmm, that's interesting. Carry on, Mark, sorry. I don't want to remind you of the dark days of psychiatry of the last century, but that was precisely the pathway that was severed mm-hmm. in, in a, a, a prefrontal leukotomy. Right. Um, for the treatment of psychosis. Right. So, so um, as ghoulish as the procedure was, it was actually rather successful in reducing positive symptoms of, of, of hallucinations and delusions. Right. And if you pause for a moment and think about it, it's not surprising because what mm. are dreams if not hallucinations? And well, delusions? you yeah. see, I mean, the, uh, this is something else that I came across, which is really the, the, the kind of link between REM sleep, schizophrenic-like uh, manifestations in terms of dreams. So, I mean, that is interesting, and, and maybe you want to elaborate a little bit on that as you go along. Well, a prefrontal leukotomy was performed on thousands of schizophrenic and other psychotic patients in the, in the middle of, of, of the 20th century. And I, um, having observed in my study that patients with lesions, they were actually quite hard to get uh, a discrete mm. Uh, lesions bilaterally in the in a ventromesial frontal white matter, so I didn't have a large number of them, and I went back to the old literature yes. from the from the forties and fifties, and found that in fact I hadn't discovered anything new. That the psychiatrists who did that op those days uh, in in the in the heyday of psychoanalysis, they were interested in dreams, so they asked their patients about dreams, right. and uh, this was uh, re- it, it was observed. Uh, in large clinical series that the, the effects of this operation were, first of all, reduction in positive uh, psychotic symptoms. Right. Secondly, a loss of motivational initiative, a right. loss of drive. Um, and thirdly, a loss of dreaming. Interesting. And in fact, one German psychiatrist named Schindler observed that if the, if the patient after the operation continues to dream, it's a bad prognostic sign. Right. Uh, and again, for the obvious reason, it shows you're still able to generate hallucinations and delusions um, if you're still able mm. to generate dreams. But, but what was really imp- – and by the way, it wasn't only um, – so that was my study in – that study I did in the, uh, in the 90 – well, I published it in the, in the, in the late 1990s. Um, but then subsequently, there were other studies using other methods. So we, we did single-cell recordings in the ventral tegmental area – and, and, and found that uh, those neurons are firing uh, rapidly uh, with burst, uh, 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 you know, which, is, which maximizes the release of the neurotransmitter, burst firing, uh, maximally during REM sleep. And um, which, let us not forget, is 90% of the time you're dreaming during REM sleep. So right. even though they're not the same thing, you can operationalize dreaming sleep as REM sleep for the purposes of that sort of study. Right. We also found with microdialysis that... Dopamine is maximally released uh, during REM sleep, right? Um, and uh, and also with pharmacological manipulations, you can increase dreaming with dopamine agonists, mm-hmm. and you can decrease de- uh, dreaming with dopamine blockers. So dopamine seems to be a critical neurotransmitter in relation to dreams. Would that Absolutely. be correct? Yeah. So the critical neurotransmitter for for REM generation is acetylcholine, right? Um, and the and the critical uh, transmitter for dream generation is dopamine. Okay, that's very important because I mean we're disassociating REM and dreams. Uh, it, it, mm. It's not an absolute relationship, and we're saying that they're different neurotransmitters for either aspect. They really are. Uh, I mean, and, and uh, not only did we show uh, that dopamine uh, blockade uh, leads to a, a suppression of dreaming, 
But uh, if you give anticholinergics, in other words, if you if you block acetylcholine, uh, you would expect if that was what was driving dreams that you would then have less dreams. But in fact, it's the opposite. You have increased dreaming with with anticholinergics. In fact, as you might know, you can dream while you're awake if you take anticholinergics. So it's uh, they really it's a very strong dissociation. Uh, dreaming is driven by dopamine, very well established by these multiple methods that I've mentioned. And, uh, and, and REM is driven by acetylcholine, which, which raises the question, why do they correlate? You know, wh- wh- why do they occur together? Yes. Um, but the, the most interesting thing is that that, I mentioned that those, um, leukotomy patients, um, that they reported, uh, uh, well, not the, the, those who studied them yes. observed a, a substantial loss of motivation. And so, you know, what, what's interesting is that the circuit that drives the dream process is more than anything else. In other words, this mesocortical, mesolimbic dopamine circuit, it's a motivational circuit. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if you look at the dreaming brain, like, for example, you look at PET imaging of, of what the brain looks like during REM sleep. Yes. It's, it's really very interesting that you have, you have deactivation primarily of frontal cortex. Right. There's, there's quite a lot of cortical deactivation, but it's, it, it, it regionally it's mainly frontal. Um, and you have massive activation of the limbic circuitry almost in general, but, but in particular of this, this motivational, this dopamine driving uh, 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 reward-seeking circuit. It's actually called the reward system by, by many um, uh, behavioral neuroscientists. So, you know, norm, if you look at that picture of what's going on, you would think, you know, this person's disinhibited, first of all, because their frontal cortex isn't functioning, right. uh, which we think has to do with the lack of agency in dreams. You know, um, Alison mentioned that you can't control sleep. And, and likewise, in, mm. apart from a few people who have the lucid dreaming, you know, most of us, we can't control our dreams. They happen to us. Uh, you know, you, you are just a passenger uh, in your dreams. And we think that has to do with the prefrontal um, deactivation. But but if you know, so, you, you first of all, you, you, you don't have that frontal regulation, that executive control uh, of your of your mental processes. But secondly, you have this massive surge of dopaminergic motivation. So the question is, you know. In waking life, if you, if you had a patient who had no frontal cortical control and this massive drive of dopamine, you would expect them to be doing all sorts of things. Exactly. And, and, uh, you know, and, and as Alison said, in REM behavior disorder, you see that we do do all sorts of things, uh, and, and all sorts of instinctual things, as a matter of fact, mm. the violent behavior mm. that, which is the most common, uh, uh, you know, aggressive behavior is the most common, of, uh, uh, what you see in REM behavior disorder in human beings. In other animals, you see all sorts of instinctual behaviors. Animals dream? Mm-hmm. Well, we can never know for sure, but the evidence <laughs> is pretty strong that they do. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, so that, that comes back to the point that I've made earlier about the myotonia. I mean, the myotonia is actually a critical uh, a component of that, of, of that time. Otherwise, there would be absolute chaos in every bedroom, mm-hmm. every night. Yeah, yeah. So my own, you asked me what my own theory is. Yes. It's, it's not a big theory. It's a little theory. <laughs> it's kind of in the sense that it's sort of obvious in that it flows directly from the things that I've just told you. Yes. Uh, my, my claim is that because we have this motivational surge in while we're asleep, 
um, and it is incompatible with the state of sleep to be doing whatever it is that the motivation is is impelling you to do. Uh, instead, you dream. In other words, dreaming is a kind of imaginary doing stuff uh, rather than really doing stuff. So it's uh, the, my 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 claim was that dreaming uh, has some sort of sleep protective function that you, that that uh, by by acting out your motivational urges in the virtual reality of the dream uh, you 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 you're kind of uh, diverting uh, that motivational impulse into this imaginary space rather than actually doing something in the real world and uh, we we've recently uh, we've just done a pilot study to test that hypothesis right we, we're now doing a bigger study in berlin at the charité hospital but the pilot study we did here in cape town at grooteski and uh, what we, and we just compared a small number of non-dreaming patients with dreaming patients but these were not ones with damage to that dopamine pathway okay. these were patients with damage to the occipital parietal cortex so remember i said that that perceptual mm. cortex at the back yes. visual perceptual cortex if you have damage there you also have loss of dreaming so we, we we in those patients the dopamine circuit is still intact so the prediction was uh, the non-dreamers should have worse sleep than the dreamers if dreaming has some sort of sleep protective function and did you find that we found it very strongly although of course it's small numbers uh, and the bigger study is still busy running so we we can't say anything conclusive yet but the differences between the dreamers and non-dreamers were enormous well i think uh, that the reason i'm jumping on that is because i came across and for the life of me i couldn't find the reference after i'd extracted the information that actually dreamers seem to have much uh, greater sleep, fewer awakenings, fewer arousals, fewer micro arousals than non-dreamers. So, in fact, f- from from a functional point of view, dreaming is actually very good. Mm. Yeah, um, that's if it. As Alison told us earlier, how very important sleep is for our our, our health. Um, you know, it, it, if uh, if if dreaming has a sleep protective function, then it's then it's a jolly good thing. Um, and the difference is just, you, you mentioned uh, those variables uh, a minute ago, but I mean, the numbers, uh, the the differences in micro arousals, arousals and awakenings between dreamers and non-dreamers are in the order of three to four times. Okay. You, know, you have three to four times more arousals, micro arousals and awakenings if you don't dream. Uh, and, uh, and you spend uh, 25% less of your sleeping hours uh, I mean, of your of your nighttime hours sleeping. In other words, there's a 25% loss of total sleep time uh, if you don't dream. So we're looking at dreams in a very kind of physiological way. It's a very protective um, at, a, at, a, at, a, at a bodily level. So, Mark, I just have to, because I, I think people are going to be curious about dream analysis, dream interpretation, Freud, Jung, etc. Where do you see that? fitting in because the, the, the understanding and increasingly, you know, in terms of our discussion is that, well, you know, dreams have a very specific purpose at a physiological level. But what about all the other stuff? Because I think that is what seems to fascinate people increasingly or always has, I think. It's not just increasingly. I think it's always been. So what would your thoughts be on that? Well, <clears throat> the <laughs> since ancient times, I mean, let's go Back before Freud and Jung, yes. since ancient times, in just about every culture, uh, uh, p- people have believed that dreams uh, con- have some kind of meaning. Yes. Um, so, so you know, it's interesting 
that that for thousands of years all over the planet people have believed that and um you know they're different depending on the culture the meaning that they ascribe to dreams is different um the the freudian view was uh, as was alluded to earlier about conscious and unconscious and all of that you know was that there's some sort of release of from inhibition of what what are what are normally unconscious motivational drives um and that the dream gives expression to those uh, you know i i i w- wouldn't have um given credence to that view uh, or for that matter to the pre-scientific views and you still hear them today you know i speak to popular audiences yes. non-scientific audiences and I, always there's somebody in the audience who says i've i have my dreams foretell the future you know uh, uh, my my dreams have a have a you mentioned prophecy earlier yes you know, uh, i wouldn't have given any credence to that either and in fact i think that it's very unlikely that they do but but i think that there's you can see from a scientific point of view where this all comes from when you recognize that dreaming is driven by that dopamine system it is um, the the functional name for that system is the seeking system okay it's a it is a uh, it is a, 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 a kind of forward looking uh, uh, ex- foraging exploratory sort of drive that is that is um, mediated by that circuit so it has something to do with sort of anticipation or prediction or looking ahead um it, it trying to achieve something so i think that from a scientific point of view that's probably what people are intuiting when they feel the dream has something to do with the future and when the freudians were saying it has something to do with giving expression to wishes you know to to mm. to deep dark wishes it's something about you know the future so uh, so can i ask you cuz i'm going to tell you a short story about a predictive dream that i had and it stayed with me so i had a patient who i was very closely connected to um they were no longer under my care but we'd formed a very strong or she they had formed a very strong bond with me anyway the patient moved on and some time later i encountered a colleague and i i said to them uh, so let me just say i woke up one morning profoundly disturbed by a dream that i'd had and the dream that i'd had was of this patient having committed suicide and was found hanging in the uh, linen room of an institution and i woke up profoundly disturbed and i thought it's, it's it's just a dream forget about it but i was profoundly troubled by it sometime later i encountered a colleague and and by chance i said um do you know what happened to so and so and they said oh hadn't you heard i said i've got no knowledge for some time and they said well family went to visit they had been admitted couldn't be found searched for and found having hung themselves in the linen room of the institution and i said come on i said how is this possible i said i actually dreamt it i said when did this happen and he said well at about the time that i'd actually had the dream and i said come on how do you explain that it's not possible that i could have had this dream and so for me the 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 experience of having had a dream that reflected reality without my knowing the reality stuck with me and so i've always been a little bit weary of 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 dreams 
and I sure as hell don't like those kind of dreams, but I've had one such experience. I, I, I'm sure that doesn't necessarily equate into a theory, but how would one explain that, Mark? Well, um, look, I think what I need to say, first of all, is that we scientists are always, you know, oh, well, you can explain it like this. I think we have to have a little bit of humility and remember that there are, you know, more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in our philosophies. We don't understand everything uh, and so I'm, I'm willing to have an open mind about th- these sort of things. But I will uh, tell you what I think we can say scientifically. Yes. The, the, and it's sort of deflationary, I'm afraid. <laughs> the, 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 the first thing is, you know, uh, Alison mentioned, <laughs> mentioned the importance of um, uh, sleep right. uh, and, and REM sleep uh, in, in, a, in a specific way uh, for memory consolidation. Right. So, you know, what is memory? Memories are about the past, but they are for the future. Memories are for predicting, you know, on the basis of what happened in the past, I predict that, you know, this is more likely than that to happen in the future. That's the whole purpose of learning. Yes. So, so, so memory is a predictive function. Um, it, it, it serves, I should rather say, pre- prediction. So the memory consolidation processes that are going on during sleep, and we don't yet know what part is played in dream, by dreaming itself uh, in that process? Because remember, you know, the, the sleep mechanisms uh, and the dream mechanisms are not the same thing. Correct. But yeah. we do know that memory consolidation is going on. So something to do with prediction is going on, you know, and uh, that's a very small uh, claim. Uh, yes. you know, it, it links to your experience in that it's got something to do with the future, as I was saying earlier, something right. to do with predicting. Now, the chances of your being able to, uh, in, as a good psychiatrist, to be able to predict that there's a risk here with this patient, you know, there's a suicide risk. Yes. Um, w- even if you're not explicitly thinking it, right. it brings you into the ballpark of what happened. And that doesn't explain how you knew these details of when it would happen and yes. and where it would happen, and that's where I say we have to remember, you know, that there's uh, that, that there's some things we don't understand and can't explain. Well, but but I, I think in the ball, you're in the ballpark of predicting uh, right. on the basis of experience. But I want to add one further thing, which yes. is again a deflationary, which is that you know, you, of course, you remember that one dream yes. because that one occasion in your entire life. Of all the dreams that you had, I that hit, one coincided with reality. I hit the spot. Yeah, statistically, it's probably about uh, about as much as you should expect mm. that once out of a billion occasions, you, you know, you actually get it right by chance. Mm. Right. Uh, and, I think. Uh, yeah, I think that's been my response to people who've come up to me and said, "But I had this dream yes. that this plane was going to crash, and it crashed." And I kind of go, "So, how many other dreams did you have about planes crashing where it never happened?" Well. Okay, and they always you. go, they kind of step back and they go, oh, yeah, okay. It, it's, yeah, there's a probability that it might happen. Well, I hear you. and mm-hmm. I, but, I, but it's okay. You can have your dream. I kind <laughs> of had to put it out there. Well, because, because the truth of the matter is there is no definitive explanation. No. It's, it's pure chance, pure coincidence. Is there more going on? Is there more to our existence than we understand? But that's a whole different discussion. But I want to change tech just briefly. And I want to talk about nightmares, and I specifically want to talk about that within the context of post-traumatic stress disorder, because obviously those experiences are very real for the patient. They reflect an actual traumatic incident. So there we have 
a bad dream, which is very, not just symbolic, but actually reflective. And I think for me, that then begs the question to what extent, you know, as much as we have random sort of imagery in, in dreams, to what extent actually dreams do concretely reflect reality if, 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 if one is taking the nightmares in PTSD as, a, as an illustration? Mark, what would your thoughts be? Yep. I, so, first of all, you know, in the past in psychiatry, there, there have been, I think, uh, excessive claims about, you know, we understand dreams, we can interpret dreams, dreams mean this, dreams mean that. Right. But but I think that the opposite claim that dreams are utterly meaningless is is you know is is equally unfounded. It's the the answer is somewhere between the two. And I yes. think the point that you just made is a very good one. Starting with with the with the nightmares of PTSD patients, clearly these dreams are not random. You know, clearly these dreams re- refer to uh, current concerns, uh, to 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 real events uh, that are meaningful in that patient's life. Right. Um, and uh, then there's empirical work um, more broadly than with the uh, PTSD patients, which demonstrates empirically that current concerns are reflected in dreams. You know, so the things that are on your mind that are troubling you, that you're thinking about, that stressing you out, what you're worrying about, those are those themes are likely to appear in your dreams, um, and that's demonstrably true. Um, then there are also all sorts of other bits of evidence. I mean. For one thing, what I've just mentioned, the fact that that motivational system, it's the main motivational system of the mammalian brain, you know, right. that, that, that dopamine system. The fact that that is so switched on like a Christmas tree while you're dreaming, you know, suggests, well, perhaps there's some motivational thing, something that matters to the dreamer, yes. you know, is driving the dream process. And then there are all sorts of other things. I mean, like, for example, um, you, you can predict, uh, as, as, um, uh, Rosalind Cartwright showed, uh, you can predict who's going to become depressed after a divorce uh, from looking at whether the affect in their dreams improves over the night or doesn't. Uh, if it doesn't improve over the dreams over the night, uh, then that predicts that that, that patient's going to become, that, that person's going to become depressed. So we come to the issue of dreams as prediction. Yeah. <laughs> Which is in kind a, in of interesting <laughs> in a different way. But yeah, I think what's, what, what's interesting in terms of, of, of the nightmares and PTSD is that I came across some cutting edge research at the moment. Uh, and they speak about a precision neuronutrient dopamine agonist KB200Z. And they've done studies on this substance, which actually eliminates nightmares and can actually lead to the initiation of pleasant dreams. So coming back to this whole issue of how important dopamine is. Mm. So this is not a commercially available product, Mm-mm. but they're conducting early studies. And, you know, I think that for sufferers of PTSD who have nightmares, it's heartening to understand that there is some kind of work that would eliminate mm. this awful mm. uh, aspect of the, of, of the illness. So Mark, that kind of comes to the issue of dopamine. And yes. dreams and, and, and nightmares. I don't know if you've come across this work or, or, or if you've seen the work, but certainly, as I said, it, it seems quite preliminary, but it looks very promising, actually. Mm-hmm. I think what's, what I found always useful for patients who have nightmares is the understanding that the nightmarish part of it, i.e. being stuck and right. not being able to move, comes from the paralysis. Right. That you okay. have a brain that's going, go, 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 run, 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 and the body's going, Meh, love to do that, but, okay, can't move. And so that sense of I can't move, I'm stuck, is a very biological thing. Right. And it, that's very scary. 
Yeah, it's very scary. But honestly, patients, when they know that, they go, oh, okay. So that's just a thing about how my body is. And I go, yeah, it is. And that takes away a lot of the why can't I do something? Why can't I? Why can't I? So you're kind of saying just go with the flow. <clears throat> you can't stop that. You can't I mean, stop it. It's a good thing that you can't act out that what, you th- what you're thinking of because you'd get up and run out the bedroom. <laughs> Absolutely. So but I think… Maybe not so good. Well, I, maybe not so good depending on how you're mm. dressed. So the issue is that I think we're saying it's not one thing or the other. It's not mm. that dreams are all about interpretation or all about physiology. There's probably something somewhere in between. Um, but I think we have a greater understanding of the physiology of dreams and the sort of brain structures and some of the neurochemistry that is associated with, with dreams, which I think is very important. And also the, 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 the purpose that dreams serve if we put the interpretation and the predictive stuff to one side, there's actually an important function that dreams actually serve uh, in, in, in normal human physiology. Mark, would you concur? And, and mm-hmm. Alison? Yes, yes I, would, I, I think that yeah. that's, that's what we can say now. I think there's a hell of a lot more that we will be able to say in the future. This is a, this is a, a, a developing field. But uh, in other words, I'm, I'm saying I don't believe that dreaming has no function. I think we've established, at least in a preliminary way, that it has some sleep protective function. I yes. don't think by any means that's its only function. Dreaming doubtlessly has many other functions that are still to be uh, to, to be discovered. But it's 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 not just froth. It's not just mm. nonsense. You yes. Know, both I, physiologically mm. and psychologically, uh, they, they, the dreams are doing something. Yeah, I think once you, once you accept, which I think we do accept that dreams are a physiological process. They're not some spiritual kind of random thinking process. There's no function in the body that's a proper physiological process, which is not useful. Exactly. That was something that I had thought, well, it, what's the purpose? Yeah, there must be a purpose. The fact that we don't know the purpose just means we're not clever enough yet to figure that out. That's all. So. <laughs> So I'm thinking of the, 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 the word which describes the scientific study of dreams, oneirology. I think that's to some extent what we've been talking about mm-hmm. today. And I just really want to thank you, Alison and, and Mark, for, for joining us and sharing of your time and knowledge. I think it's a fascinating conversation and a fascinating phenomenon. And we don't have answers, but we have some. We don't have the full answer, but we have some mm-hmm. answers that uh, give us uh, 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 an understanding of what purpose dreams might serve. So whatever your thoughts on the phenomenon of dreams are, there's a more straightforward view from one of America's greatest short story writers and a personal favorite of mine, Raymond Carver. He said, dreams, you know, are what you wake up from. So remember, there is no health without mental health. I hope today's podcast has been enlightening. I am Professor Christopher Paul Sabo. This is Beyond Madness in proud association with Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave.